through the Gospel of Mark, I just um, want to make it clear to you this morning. There's a reason that we study books of the Bible like this in the way that we do on Sunday mornings. Um, we It's not accidental or haphazard um, for us to very slowly but surely study through these books of Scripture, in the order in which they come. And some of you are used to that, and that's normal for you. Some of you, maybe that's a new thing for you to study the Bible like this. But why do we do it that way? Why go through Scripture, through books like this, in the order in which they come? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. But the primary reason that we do that is theological. We believe that God has spoken to us through His Word, And that we ought to take his word seriously as it has come to us. So the God of the universe has given us a book that has 66 different books in it. And we want to take those words of life seriously. And we believe that they have come to us in the order that they're in on purpose and with intention. And so if God has spoken to us through the Bible in the structure and the order in which we have it, then we want to understand what God has to say to us as he has said it to us. Now, it doesn't mean you can't study Scripture other ways, topically and all of that. But the biblical authors, Mark, Paul, Moses, I mean, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write for a particular purpose. There was an intention behind what they wrote. And our goal in studying is to uncover that purpose or that intention in what they wrote. And we do that through studying what we have in front of us, the writings that we have in context as they wrote them. And so one of the great advantages of this, uh, I guess you could call it an advantage or a disadvantage, but I, I think it's an advantage, is that we come to passages of Scripture that maybe we wouldn't study otherwise, or maybe we wouldn't get as much out of otherwise. And so We get to these passages, and we may just gloss over them, but when you're studying them in context, now they can begin to pop off the page a little more, and you know why they're in here, and you know why Mark put this text in here in the order in which he did. And so that's what we're we're trying to do as we study through a gospel, the gospel of Mark, or any other book like this. And that sort of passage, I think, is what we come to this morning in Mark chapter 8. So open up your Bibles to Mark 8. We're going to be in verses 1 to 10. Maybe you're already there. Good Bible students, you're used to this. Now, the heading in your Bible on Mark 8 probably says something like, Jesus feeds the 4,000. And um, that's exactly right. That is what happens in this passage. But I think when you see this passage fit within the flow of the book of Mark, that it's going to come off the page in a new way, and you're going to uncover some things that you wouldn't have seen if you just were to open to Mark 8 and read this passage on its own. And I think Mark intends for it to work that way. And so that's why we study study books like this. Now, this story is somewhat familiar to us, the feeding of the 4,000, although The feeding of the 5,000 is probably more familiar to you, and we just saw that story a couple of chapters earlier in Mark chapter 6. But what we're doing this morning, I hope, is we're, we're, it's like we're providing a little bit of background information. Uh, Maybe you have a friend, 
Maybe you've known this person since childhood and you all of a sudden find out some new experience that they've had or some new story that they tell you and it, it sheds light on who they are and what type of person they are. Well, I think that's hopefully what you're going to see this morning as we look at this passage, the feeding of the 4,000. So this morning we're going to handle things a little bit differently than we normally do. Typically I give you um, you know, four of this or three of this, two of this, and we study through those. And we'll get to some of those later on. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of encouragements from this passage. But this morning I want to read through the story And I want to study kind of through the story quickly. And then I want to back up and I want to show you how this story fits in the broader context of Mark. And then we're going to get to a couple of application points for our lives. So story, we're going to study the story. We're going to study the context. Then we're going to get to some application points. Now, I I know that sounds a little bit academic, but if you'll track with me and you'll follow with me this morning, I think you'll be encouraged with God's word. All right. So let's jump into the story. Mark chapter eight, verse one says in those days, when again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them. Now you can see this story begins with the words in those days. Well, what is he talking about there? He uses that phrase to help you connect this story to what you have just seen. This is happening at the same time as these other stories. Now, if you've been with us, you know that the previous two stories that we saw were the story of the woman, the Gentile woman whose daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit, and also of the deaf and the mute man who was in the Decapolis, which is a Gentile region. And so when you get to this story, I think one of the things Mark wants you to see is that this is the same area and this is the same time period as those other stories. Now, that's important, and I think you'll see why in a few minutes. But once again, here you find this huge crowd of people with Jesus. It says a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. This is an ongoing problem, I guess, for Jesus and his disciples. Now, as we go along and as we read this, it really should sound familiar to you. I mean, if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, you're, you're probably thinking, okay, I, like I just read something like this. And in Mark chapter 6, that's true. It was the feeding of the 5,000. And feel free, if you want to, to put your finger in Mark 6 and sort of flip back and forth and watch how closely these two stories parallel one another. It's uncanny. As I was reading and studying this this week, one commentator said, he got to this portion and he said, basically, look, just refer to my notes on the feeding of the 5,000 because it's basically the same story. (laughs) And I think you're going to see that as you go along. So look what Jesus says to the disciples, verse 2. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So they're in a wilderness area. They're not close to any towns where the people can go and get food. Pretty desolate place. And this time they've been out there for three days, which is a long time to go without any provisions. And apparently they've been listening intently to Jesus, committed to his teaching for these three days, and they're obviously starting to get physically hungry. And of course, we saw this in Mark 6, but look at the beginning of verse 2. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. He looks at this giant group of people without anything to eat, and he feels badly for them. He has pity or compassion on them. And he says, look at verse 3, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint 
on the way, and some of them have come from far away. I mean, he's like, look, guys, if we send them away now, we're going to have people passing out on their way to get food. So this is a pretty difficult situation that we find ourselves in. Look how the disciples respond in verse 4. This should sound familiar to you. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I mean, you read that and you think, okay, guys, I mean, you just saw, I don't know how much earlier this was, but you just saw Jesus feed 5,000 people in a desolate place when he had compassion on them. You saw this happen, so you would think that they would maybe in the back of their minds go, okay, maybe he'll do the same thing again. But as you'll see in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are slow to hear and slow to understand. That's certainly a lesson for us. And next time in this gospel, near the end of chapter 8, or the rest of chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus confront the disciples for their lack of ability to hear. But we'll get to that next time. Look how Jesus responds, verse 5. And he asked them, again, it's the same wording, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. So a few loaves, just like chapter 6. And notice the sequence of events. Once they have this small amount of loaves, notice what happens here. Look at verse 6. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. Now, it's not exactly the same wording. In chapter 6, he looked up to heaven, but it's the same sequence. He tells them to sit down. He breaks the bread. He blesses the bread. I mean, it's all the same wording here of what Jesus does. And he even has a few fish to go with them. Look at verse 7. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Now, once they have passed out this food... We don't know exactly how it works, but apparently it multiplies and multiplies, and these seven loaves and a few small fish end up feeding this massive crowd of people. Look at verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied, and beyond being satisfied, look what happens. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. So Jesus provides so much food for this crowd of people that they're able to take up the excess and they put it in baskets, just like what happened in chapter 6. And just like what happened in chapter 6, now we find out how many people were there. Look at verse 9. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and they move on. So... I've stressed this enough. We basically have the same story here with a few slight changes. Mostly those changes are because it's a different situation. It's a different group of people. But we just saw a miracle like this in Mark chapter 6. And so as you're studying through your Bible and you get to stories like this, you want to ask yourself a question like, why? Why does Mark include both of these stories and they're virtually the same thing? I mean, did he just mess up? and accidentally include both of them and miss the numbers, and it was really the same story? Well, no. Obviously, we don't believe that. We believe it was intentional. And I mean, even beyond that, hasn't he already made the point that Jesus will provide for people, and he'll provide spiritually for people? Hasn't Mark 
already essentially made that point with the feeding of the 5,000. And I mean, if we look and we think, okay, if you believe that these miracles are really just to show that Jesus is powerful, then hasn't he already proven that point with a similar miracle? Why, why would he do this over again? Why would he put the same basic story in the gospel that he wrote? Well, I think Mark wrote this on purpose. And I think he wrote it with almost the same wording on purpose. And he wants you to read through this and go, these are the same, basically. And then to ask the question, why? Why are these basically the same? He's making a point by doing that. So what is his point? Now, this is where we go back, and I want to show you the context in which this story comes to us, all right? So if you want to flip back there, you can, but you go all the way back to Mark chapter 6. You have the feeding of the 5,000. You look down through that story. You see the same wording. There's a couple other stories in Mark 6, and then you get to Mark chapter 7, which over the last month or so we've been studying, and Jesus talks about what truly defiles a person. You remember that whole interaction with the Pharisees? where he discusses that it's not eating with unwashed hands, but it's actually what comes out of your heart that defiles a person. And he makes that point in a very strong way. And on the heels of that interaction with the Pharisees, you get to chapter 7 and you have this story about this Gentile woman. Chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, and you have this Gentile woman. Jesus goes to a Gentile region, to Tyre and Sidon, And you have this woman, and let me remind you of what Jesus says to her in verse 27. All right, look there. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, we talked about that interaction. We talked about, you know, how potentially offensive that wording was. But we talked about what Jesus is doing there And how he's saying that his kingdom and his gospel come to the Jews first, and then they overflow out of that to the Gentiles. And I think it's interesting that when Jesus speaks to this woman, he talks about bread coming to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Of course, after he says that, he continues to minister in Gentile territory. And then we have this story of the feeding of the 4,000 here, which we believe is in Gentile territory as well. So what's the point? Well, I think that story with that woman, with that phrasing is right in the middle here, because I think what Mark, the point Mark is making is the gospel, Jesus's ministry comes to the Jews first, and then ultimately it goes to the Gentiles as well. I think the first feeding was to Jewish people, and the second feeding is to Gentile people. And so the point that he's making here is the full satisfaction and spiritual provision that is available through Christ to the Jews is available to the Gentiles as well. Now, that's not only demonstrated in these two stories. Let me show you a little chart here. I mean, look at this in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, all the way back in Mark chapter 1, you have this demon-possessed man in a Jewish synagogue. He's healed by Jesus. And then in Mark 5, you get a demon-possessed man who is obviously a Gentile in the Decapolis. Then you have a daughter of a Jewish man who is healed. Then you have a daughter of a Gentile woman healed. And then you have the feeding of the 5,000, which is to Jewish people. And then 
seems likely that the feeding of the 4,000 here, Mark 8, 1 to 10, is to Gentiles. And so I think that's why, why this story is here and why it's written in the same way. To show us that the ministry of Jesus will expand out from the Jews to the Gentiles. So that brings us to kind of the last portion of the message this morning. What application can you and I take away from this? And I think we could take some significant application away because most, if not all of us, are Gentiles. Listen, you're here this morning because of this reality, because of a passage like this. So I want to show you two encouragements for us from Christ's intentional ministry to the Gentiles. Two encouragements from Christ's intentional ministry to the Gentiles. And I use the word our here because there's only, this is the only reason that we're a part of this. Because of, of the grace of Christ coming out from the Jewish people to the entire world, to all the nations. Our hope of satisfaction is real. It's genuine. You can receive full provision and satisfaction through the work of Jesus Christ, even though he's a Jewish Messiah. The point of this story is the Gentiles receive that same full provision through Jesus. It's a level playing field at the cross. Now, as you read this story, you have to think about the imagery of bread here, because this is the focal point. They, the Jews received bread. The bread is talked about with this woman in chapter 7. And then the Gentiles receive the bread as well. They are satisfied. And that word satisfied is used twice in the feeding of the 4,000. And it's used of the people in the feeding of the 5,000 as well. It's not just that they ate. It's that they ate and were fully satisfied with the bread that they had received. And so what do we know about bread in Scripture? Well, throughout the Bible, bread you study through it some, is spoken of as one of the most basic necessities of life. It is what sustains physical life in this world. And in many cases, as you're reading passages that use the word bread, it actually could just be translated food. I mean, this is the basic necessity of life. For your life to continue, it is a requirement that you eat food or that you take in bread. And as you process through that and think about the need that you and I have for physical food in order to sustain life, think about how needy we are as human beings. I mean, think about how weak we are in many ways. We require sleep. I mean, you and I have to lay down and close our eyes and drift away from consciousness for eight hours, nine hours a night, a third of our lives. Some of you are like, eight hours. Yeah, right. I haven't done that in years. (laughs) Fine. Six hours, five hours, whatever it is. (laughs) But you require sleep daily. You can go for maybe a day or two without sleep. But if you don't get sleep, you are going to collapse. We are so needy. Think about your need for water. If you don't take in water, you can't go the rest of the day without drinking anything. You won't be able to function normally. You will be desperate for a glass of water. We're so needy. We require sustenance. We require sleep. We require water on a regular basis for life to be sustained. And Scripture presents bread in the same way. Bread is the stuff of life. And as human beings, it's what we need for life to continue. 
But bread, beyond being a necessity for life, is spoken of in Scripture as a gift that is given to human beings. You think about Israel in the wilderness. What did God do? He provided bread for years for them. Every single day they got up and manna was there for them. That was pure grace and the pure gift of God. There are Psalms that talk about God providing food for all the creatures of the world. He gives the gift of sustenance for life. In the New Testament, the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? We pray for our daily bread because we know that we ultimately cannot produce the harvest on our own. You can plant the seed, but God has to grow the wheat that will ultimately turn into bread so that you can eat. It comes from his hand. He is the giver of all good gifts. And he gives out of the overflow of his character and his love and his delight in his creatures. And he gives abundantly. And ultimately, he gives those gifts of even bread and sleep and water to bring us back to delight and enjoyment in him. The gifts are meant to point us to his goodness and who he is. And it's not accidental that at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And this body will be broken for you. This is what you need. You need my body to be broken for you, for you to have spiritual life. And I think Mark 6 and Mark 8, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and of the 4,000, I think these stories are very vivid pictures of this need that we have here. God provides the necessities of life, spiritual life, through his son, Jesus Christ, and he gives them abundantly beyond expectation to both Jews and to Gentiles. So when you read this here, think of this as a promise that God will provide what we need spiritually. It's to be found through the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Now, the people in this story go three days without eating anything. And if you were to go one or two days without any food, you would have a gnawing hunger in your stomach. I'll never forget, I was on a trip over to Nepal um, been there a number of times. I've told you that, but we were on this trip and our return flight got delayed and uh, we ended up staying a couple of extra days in the country. We'd already been there two weeks. Uh, no good American food over there. No hamburgers, right? No, that, that sort of thing. The pizza's eh, not very good. So we're over there. We're waiting these couple of extra days. So we're there about two weeks and we had to book this uh, return flight that instead of going um, the way that we come, it actually went through China. And so we went into Western China and we flew, got up, took a several hour flight into Western China. And then we had a 12 plus hour layover in this airport in Western China. And hardly anybody spoke English in this airport and they didn't take American money. They didn't take American credit cards. And so we'd already had the flight in there. We'd been waiting in the airport. Now we get into this airport in Western China and there's no food that's accessible to us really. Um, you know, we had a couple of cliff bars in our bags, but there's no good food here. So we're waiting and waiting. Finally, the next morning, we got on the flight to Beijing. 
And it's a several hour flight across China to get to the East Coast, which is where Beijing is. And we get over there and we land. And it's probably been, I mean, we've been out of America for, you know, 20 or for two weeks. It's probably been 24 hours since we've had a good meal, which is really not that long. But we get into the airport in Beijing and we are dying of hunger. And I remember going into the airport and it's pretty westernized. And we found a pizza hut in the Beijing airport. And we were exhausted, just absolutely tired out. And we got into this pizza hut and we collapsed in one of the booths and we ordered a huge pizza. And I don't know that I've ever been so satisfied (laughs) to eat a Pizza Hut pizza before. It's some of the most enjoyable food that I've ever had. Now, when you, most of us don't experience genuine hunger. And honestly, that's nothing compared to what some people go through for as far as hunger goes. But when you actually experience gen, genuine hunger and you have a longing for food, that teaches us about the longing and the desires that are in every human heart for satisfaction and for provision. And that is only available through knowing the love of Jesus Christ as he's the bread of life. He is the only thing. His bread is the only thing that will provide satisfaction for you and I. That gnawing hunger will only be met through him and his work. I love this passage in Psalms. Because your steadfast love is better than life. You think it tastes good to eat a meal after being without food for 24 hours. It does. But there's nothing in this world There's nothing, not even life, is better than the steadfast love of Christ. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And that bread of life is available. The hope for satisfaction is real. It can be met through him. And the only appropriate response to receiving that is our second encouragement Our response of gratitude or praise is appropriate. The hope of satisfaction is real through Jesus, through his ministry to us Gentiles. And our response of gratitude is appropriate. So we see here that Jesus's ministry is extending out from the Jewish people to Gentiles. And that trajectory only continues through the New Testament, doesn't it? Acts chapter one and verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples were to take this commission that has begun in the middle of the gospel of Mark to Gentiles, and they were to take this gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, to Gentiles everywhere and to Jews everywhere. And so you read through the the book of Acts, and you see this happen, and you see that Paul is a missionary to Gentiles going throughout Asia, and he consistently does that. His basic life purpose was to bring the gospel to Gentile people. And then you get to the end of the book of Acts, and you find Paul in Rome. The gospel has gone from Jerusalem out all the way to the end of the earth, and you get to Rome, the end of Acts. Therefore, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. 
And Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This was the heartbeat of Paul's ministry. And you can see this very clearly. And this puts our salvation in perspective in Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul explains this reality very clearly and gives encouragement to you and I. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. He's the centerpiece. He might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, you and I, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple, a dwelling place in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the place where Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into one body, the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. You and I have access to the Father, Yahweh, through Jesus Christ. And Paul continues to describe his work to the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 3. And then you get down into Ephesians 3 and verse 14. And his theology turns to praise to the Lord. Look at this prayer in verse 14. For this reason, because of God's work in bringing Jew and Gentile together, the gospel going to Gentiles, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's be honest. You and I are that group of 4,000 people on the hillside, in the wilderness, without any ability to provide for our own needs, spiritually speaking. Ephesians 2 says that you and I were Gentiles standing on the outside of the house 
without any access to the covenants of promise. And because of all of that, we are truly recipients of his grace and kindness. And the only appropriate response is what Paul says here, that praise and gratitude for what has been done for us. Sometimes it's, um, it's hard to capture uh, the, the emotion that we should be feeling over something like this or that I should be feeling. And sometimes the best way to do that is in a, a poem or a hymn. And the, sometimes the hymn writers just have a way of nailing this. And I want to read you a hymn written by Isaac Watts that I think brings all of this together. And it talks about the gratitude and the sheer wonder that you and I have been included in this, that we have received provision in the bread of life, that we have the hope of satisfaction, that we're able to experience that now. And he brings all of that together and talks about the church as the place where that happens. And then he longs for that to go out to the ends of the earth. And so I want to read you this hymn and we'll end with this. It's called How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? What are we doing here? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Let's pray. Father, all of our hearts should be asking that question. Why was I a guest? Why was I invited to this feast? Why were we included in this? Why are we here this morning, Lord? Why didn't we, each person in here, continue on the path that we had set for ourselves, running away from you, despising you, and pursuing our own desires and our own selfish ends? But God, you and your grace reached out and saved each one in here through the abundant provision of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, our response to that is wonder and praise. And yet our response also ends by saying, send your word abroad, Lord. We have received the bread. We who are Gentiles, who are on the outside, we have received your grace. And our response is not to keep that to ourselves, but to look out and say, there are so many more who need to be invited to the feast and who have the opportunity to take of the bread and the provision that is available. And so, Lord, this is our prayer, that you would send your victorious word abroad, that you would embolden us to speak the gospel and to tell people about the provision that is available through your son, the bread of life, Jesus Christ.
Use our little church body to accomplish that in this area, Father, and all over the world. That's our prayer. That's our desire. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ.